Hey, it's Chris Garlock with our very first Pod Extra edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network meet every Wednesday online to share information about upcoming shows and get advice from other labor podcasters and radio producers. Often, we feature special guests who we think our fellow broadcasters might want to book on their shows. We decided as an experiment to go ahead and record these sessions and share some of them with you, both as a preview of some of the shows in the network and as a behind-the-scenes look at how podcasts and radio producers put together the shows that you listen to. Our guests this week are longtime photojournalist David Bacon and Greg Leroy from Good Jobs First. Let's just go ahead and dive in. Be sure to let us know what you think. I can only stay for a few minutes, but I just wanted to take a minute or two, perhaps, to say that uh, by now you've probably all seen the results of the latest Gallup poll. 71%. The highest approval rating for unions since 1965, y'all. And I just want to remind you, you played a role in that. Everybody in the network played a role in that because since we've done this, since we've been operating as a collective, people who don't have labor media in their area have been able to connect to labor media from other areas. People who only have one hour a week in Kansas City or maybe five minutes in Washington, D.C., find out that there's other labor radio shows and podcasts that they can listen to. And that's helped to spread the word. And I really do think that what we've been doing over the past couple of years has helped to move the needle. We've been reporting on all these victories. We've been reporting on all these actions. We've been bringing workers' struggles to the ears of people who might not have thought about them. So congratulate yourselves. Take a lap and then keep on doing what you're doing. Oh, Harold, you were, you, you've touched my heart, brother. Thank you so much uh, for, for bringing that up. I, I, I had the whole 71% thing, but I hadn't made the, the connection. So thanks for doing that. Also, uh, for our audio audience, for our podcast, can you just remind folks of the show that you host? Yeah, absolutely. I co-host Working to Live in Southwest Washington, which is produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. And we will be putting out an episode this weekend, our Labor Day episode, where we talk about all the union members who are running for office in Southwest Washington. So watch for that. Excellent. Thank you, Harold. All right. Uh, So let me turn this over to uh, Judy and Self from the Heartland Labor Forum. Thanks, Chris. Um, Gosh, I've known David since the late 90s, I think, uh, because I was part of the uh, Coalition for Justice and the Maquila Doors. And David was always at our meetings, always recording the lives of Maquila workers in Mexico and the struggles. And has just had an awesome career in looking at the immigration issues through a lens that nobody else does. Um, From the point of view of the millions, I guess, of migrants who have come to the United States to work and those who are working in Mexico and the connections between us. And um, so I I just want to 
make a comment about one thing in the book. Uh, one of the parts of the book is um, a story of a guy named Omar Hill. Omar was a maquila worker at Delphi in Nuevo Laredo. And I remember Omar very well from our work there. I remember uh, one story where we picked him up at work at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and um, we had a van full of Americans. And he says to us, he says, I'm so excited. I'm gonna become a stockholder in Delphi. And some of you who are old enough might remember the, the irony of that since you know GM divested itself of, of Delphi. And he showed us this really fancy brochure in Spanish that they gave all the workers telling them that they could take their you know like $5 day wage and invest and become stockholders in the company they worked for. And it was really sad that we had to, you know, like kind of burst his bubble and explain to him what a, what a sham that was. Omar's story is in this book, and it's just a beautiful story. You know, David is known mostly as, as a photographer, but he's also a really good writer and a great guest. So we had him on our show um, about three or four weeks ago. One of our newer volunteers, Joyce, interviewed him. She didn't know anything about the topic. She read the book and 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 she is now a total fan. So um, David did a great job. So take it away, David. Well, uh, thank you very much, Judy and Chris and all of you. Um, so I'm gonna share the screen here. And um, you know, also I, I was a, a labor radio show host for 17 years on KPFA. I just want to point that out. Um, anyway, I'm gonna just uh, show some photographs and um, talk about them a little bit for as, as long as I can. So we'll get through as much as possible. So um, these are to begin with um, photographs from um, the San Quintin Valley, which is the big agricultural valley in Baja, California. And it starts with some images of workers themselves and um, on their way to work and just sort of trying to document what the um, lives of workers look like. So you can see asleep on the bus going to the fields, right? And then here's what happens when the bus gets there is people hang their knapsacks up on the wall behind there and then they run into the fields because the conditions are very exploitive in um, Baja California, San Quintin Valley. So this is kind of a, a little bit of a, a reality check on what um, agriculture in Mexico looks like. And I also wanna say, this is, this is not that different from agriculture in California and in the US either, especially when we're looking at the um, labor of children in the fields. So this is uh, um, uh, Isabella Ruiz, who's six years old and bunching um, green onions um, on a school day um, in the San Quintin Valley. So, you know, obviously what, what gets parents to bring their kids to work is the fact that the families can't live on the income of just a single um, worker. In fact, all, everybody in the family works. So workers in the San Quintin Valley went on strike in 2015. These are some of the women who were are the strikers. You can see that they're indigenous women um, because of the wipiles that they're wearing. And um, 
And here, here in this photograph, what they're doing is there's some negotiations going on about the minimum wage in agriculture in Baja California between the new independent union that these workers are organizing and the um, Baja California government. And behind the government, of course, are the big growers, including the biggest one, which is Driscoll Berries, which I'm sure if you've gone to the fruit aisle of your uh, supermarket lately, you've seen their berries because they are the largest berry company in the world. Um, so this is really who the strike was against. Um, but because of the situation in Mexico, the negotiations go on with the involvement of the government there. These are strikers um, in a bus um, on their way up to the border to demonstrate. Um, and you know, it's just a picture trying to show what the anger of the workers looks like. And also their, um, their main demand, which is aumento salario, which means we want higher wages. And here are the strikers um, and what they've done is they've gone to the border. This is the border fence here, part of it. And um, they are essentially addressing us as consumers in the US saying, you know, you need to take responsibility for what happens to us because it's our labor that's um, producing what you're eating. And so the banner says, exigimos un salario justo de 300 pesos por día. Um, that means we are demanding a fair wage of 300 pesos a day um, at 20 pesos to the dollar. You can do the calculation yourself. So also, as you was saying, um, we worked together in the Coalition for Justice in the Maquiladoras for uh, many years. And um, in the process of that, there was a strike or there was a union election for an independent union at a, at a company in Tijuana called Plasticos Bajacal. And I managed to actually talk my way into the plant and take some photographs in there. And so this is a photograph of a guy, you know, these are the hangers that you see in the stores that hold up um, pairs of pants. And you can just see from the movement of his hands how fast it is that he's working. Um, and these are some photographs that sort of show what the conditions of Mexican workers are. Um, what's interesting about this photograph are these wires that are going into the, this community of Maquiladora workers in the desert. And these wires are basically um, coming from the electric line. People are robbing electricity from the electric lines. And then you know these wires go off along the ground and you can imagine how dangerous that is um, off to the homes where people um, this is the only way that they can get their power. Um, this is an image of Maquiladora worker community in, um, in Tijuana, near Tijuana. And you can see everything in this community comes from the factory. You know, the pallets, the homes are made with pallets and you can see them in the background. Even the car that the kids are sitting on, um, you can see this faint indication of this logo on the side of it on um, the car itself was a cast off from the factories. So it's like, you know, it gives the whole idea of the company town a whole new meaning. Um, this is one of the strikers to this Reyes in a company called Han Young. And that was probably the most important strike in the Maquiladoras during the 90s and the early 2000s for an independent union. And there were two strikes there. It was a company that made um, big shipping containers for Hyundai Corporation. And you know, this is uh, Silvestre Reyes, who's one of the strikers. 
And here are workers voting in the old way in Mexican union elections, which was open voting. And the women at the typewriters are typing up declarations and each person has to sign a declaration that says how they voted. And of course, this is all out in the open and the company's watching and the company union. And of course, people get fired in large numbers. This is one of the main things that we used to object about. In fact, we were able eventually to get as part of the labor reform in Mexico, a prohibition on this kind of non-secret ballot election. Here are the, um, the SWAT team, the Tijuana SWAT team coming in to break up the strike. Um, and you see on the wall of the factory is the Comité de Huelga de Hanyang, that means the strike committee of Hanyang. And then they put their demands in one of the um, uh, those handwritten signs on the wall. And then um, finally, this is my favorite picture. You remember him? I'm sure, Judy, this is uh, Dave Campbell, who's still head of the uh, steel workers local, the refinery workers local in El Segundo in Los Angeles, probably the biggest refinery local in uh, the steel workers union. And Dave was a solidarity activist, if there ever was one. Absolutely. And, and went to Mexico many, many, many times, taking the resources of his union to help um, workers there organize, help the communities of workers. And for that matter, when the war and the occupation of Iraq started, they were one of the main unions that tried to help Iraqi oil workers um, in their effort to set up unions as well, too. And, and, didn't, so, Dave's, and didn't Dave's union also sponsor the um, car wash organizing? They did. Samson's they did. in LA. Yeah. That's right. The car, the car washeros. Um, they yeah. became a, a, a unit of of the steel workers union. And they are also in the forefront of the fight around um, uh, just conversion and climate change. And they have this program actually for going into the refineries and talking to their own members about um, what's gonna happen to refinery jobs. And people can sort of see electric cars on the horizon, especially in California. And everybody is worried like crazy about their jobs and sort of talking about how to advocate for just conversion as well. So it's pretty much anything that's progressive that goes on in Los Angeles, um, they're there. So I think that's it for my time here. And I wanna thank you for giving me this chance to show you the images and to spend some time with you. And now let me introduce Greg Leroy and uh, Arlene Martinez. Um, Greg is with Good Jobs First. And actually Greg's gonna be on our show on, on the 22nd, I think. Um, with a, I want him to do a primer on what's wrong with economic development strategies that our cities are using and uh, dedicating our tax dollars to uh, subsidies for developers. Um, but gosh, I've known Greg a long time too, back when he was the editor of, uh, what was the name of that journal? Labor Research Review. Yeah, it was a great journal <laughs> in the 90s had all sorts of creative ideas for unions. It was, I really missed it when it went out of publication, but on to better things. Good Jobs First is based in Washington, DC. And why don't you tell us uh, about your operation and um, what our members can learn or our listeners can learn from, from what you do. Thanks, Judy. So in, in hasty uh, time here is to allow lots of questions. Arlene and I are gonna just explain it. On the labor side, the work we do appeals to both private and public sector unions. We work a lot on Amazon, so that's obviously of interest to the Teamsters and the food and commercial workers and Amazon Labor Union and other independent organizing uh, worker centers. We do a lot of work on uh, the defense of public services and, and 
basically going after corporate welfare. We are the we are the national corporate welfare busting group, I guess is the best way to say it. If, you, if you're not familiar with our work or if you haven't looked at our website. So it, obviously all the big public employee unions, AFT, SCIU, NEA, AFSME are very supportive of what we do because we're really helping save the tax base to preserve public services and keep the tax base more progressive and less you know, corporate dominated. We train for union uh, research departments. We have lots of unions that both support us financially, but also make uh, a good use of our resources and our training. We've done commission studies like on Nissan for the UAW or like Walmart uh, for the food and commercial workers. Um, we've done work for the National Public Pension Coalition, pointing out that corporate welfare in many states far exceeds what states would normally owe to, to maintain fully funded pension obligations, for example. We've also done a lot of work on sprawl and the connection to smart growth, which can be very pro-union if it's done right, including even for the building trades. The most popular database is called Violation Tracker and certainly the page that gets used the most by unions. This is a regulatory penalty database. So if you're tangling with a company and you want to know how, how many times they've been cited by OSHA or EPA or paid penalties for wage theft or racial discrimination or foreign bribery, or you know, many dozens of other kinds of violations. This one database hoovers up uh, more than 400 sources uh, around the country, both federal and state, and in many cases, even county prosecutor uh, bases, so that you can see uh, what, uh, what's going on here. So for example, Berkshire Hathaway is a big octopus of a company, we know, right? That, um, has lots of subsidiaries that aren't named Berkshire Hathaway. And we associate all those in one place for you. So every thing that they've ever been penalized for all in one place. And with for a modest subscription fee, you can even download a spreadsheet uh, with extra da data about all these uh, violations. And in, in every case, these links actually take you back to the original records. So if it was a press release from the Department of Justice or a, an announcement from a state attorney general, or a report from the EPA or OSHA, we give you the, you know, don't take our word for it. We're not making this stuff up. We always take you back to the original source documents. Subsidy Tracker is our oldest database. And that's really at the heart of our mission about um, helping people identify corporate welfare recipients. So we also have that parent subsidiary business going on. If we were to put Berkshire Hathaway in there again, uh, you would see that we would um, have lots of pieces of a company that you've never heard of before. Like who knew that there's a company called Nebraska Furniture Mart? Oh, I do. <laughs> got a, an $802 million <laughs> subsidy. You know it? Okay. Oh yeah, they're huge here. They're like the Walmart of furniture, right? Or the mega Walmart of furniture, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of upscale though. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, well, so you can see all the corporate welfare that, Warren Buffett has gotten in case he uh -huh. were to spout some platitude about, you know, free markets or something. Um, and again, super useful. We tell people no matter what you're doing, if you're tangling with a company, look them up in our databases because you'll find out how their bread's getting buttered by taxpayers, who else they've had disputes with, what kind of other parties might want to talk to you if you have a dispute with the same company. Yeah, you sort of never know what you don't know, nor do you know all the parents and subsidiaries, unless you're going to pour over the 10Ks like we did to look for the, 
the names of all the parents. We also do this for private equity portfolio companies and other companies that are not even on the stock exchange that don't even have to publish 10Ks. So it give you a flavor for what's there. I have a question. Sure. We had a, a group of people come to our Jobs with Justice chapter and, and want to do something about a particular project that developers were asking for subsidies for in um, the city. And we first had to check with our members, uh, union members from the building trades mm -hmm. to see if they were going to have a shit fit, basically, if we opposed these subsidies. And in this particular case, they said, fine, go ahead. But that is a huge problem. Um, and do you have any advice? Oh, lots of experience, lots of <laughs> advice, <laughs> lots of scars to show for it. So look, you know, if you get in early enough on a, on a controversial project, for example, Amazon warehouses, right? We've helped a few site fights recently uh, and gotten good results. Uh, you have to talk to the trades, right? So for example, in upstate New York and Niagara County right now, we got in too late on a fight. We collectively, lots of people who had opposed, successfully opposed one uh, Amazon warehouse siting near Buffalo uh, a year and a half ago. The company came back with a different location uh, and everybody knew they were going to do that. Everybody knew that Amazon has to have a warehouse in every big market to deliver rapidly for their prime business model. They're coming. I mean, that's the thing public officials need to understand. Amazon is coming. Do not pay them to come. Their business plan forces them to come. So, so we didn't, so then but we didn't get to the building trades early enough, but what we would have said to them is look, even if this thing is inevitable, let's not let the industrial development agency give them $124 million. Let's work together with you and get the public money out of the deal and also work with you to make sure that there's local hiring and a project labor agreement and mm -hmm. prevailing wage and local hiring preferences for, for you, the trade, so you get as much of this work as possible. We, Amazon is like Walmart. They're very pragmatic about what, how much they will make in concessions on building contracts. Um, in, in Westchester, New York, they agreed to a very progressive local hiring agreement that was negotiated by the, by the local IDA and a consultant who helped the building trades negotiate the fine print. So they will, they, Amazon will swallow good building uh, agreements if there's a strong enough coalition demanding them, just like Walmart used to. Mm -hmm. It's all about local power. I often uh, have some skepticism when I see politicians that talk about uh, running government like a business, because it seems important to me that um, government does things that uh, businesses don't do, like making sure that some services operate at a loss, uh, like sometimes museums and the list could go on. Transit. Transit, buses, I mean, rural buses, uh, all sorts of things. Do you see, when you're looking at the sort of subsidy tracker, do you see like any sort of ambiguity in some subsidies? Do you see some subsidies that you sort of see as positive subsidies if they have sort of project labor agreements that are required? Are there like good examples that you can find through the subsidy tracker of local governments that might have made sensible investments? Yeah. So we get asked questions like that a lot. Um, the raw data in subsidy tracker almost never gives you much information to answer your question. Sometimes we do get wage disclosures and you can see if a company is paying well. Uh, and that, that, that would be a, the most you would normally get 
from that level of, of disclosure. We have published other studies and we have issued report card studies looking at major programs in every state, grading them on things like, do they have job quality standards, that is wage rules and healthcare benefits and full-time and direct employment requirements, things like that. Um, so as well as how well are they disclosed and how well do taxpayers get protected by clawbacks or recapture provisions if the company you know, doesn't deliver. So um, there's other ways to get to that. And then we also know, you know, sometimes states do performance evaluations. Sometimes there's investigative journalists that do great pieces. Uh, talk to us and, uh, and give us some specific places to check out and we'll tell you what we know. All right, let's do a, uh, in our remaining time, a uh, quick go round. And uh, Alan, we'll start with you. All right, are you all familiar with this Union Yes campaign from the 80s? All right, so we got the jingle and um, Saul and I have been working on getting the jingle onto YouTube. So proud to stand together for work and family. The heart and soul that's made this a better place to be. I mean, it's just anecdotal, but I, you know, I, I think it was very popular among locals okay. and you would see that image of the Union Yes image on buttons, on banners, on newsletters, um, all over the place for several years. And, you know, even today, I still, you know, see some people who have some kind of Union Yes sign. Uh, Maria, you're up. Um Friday, we're releasing the Starbucks episode finally um, with uh, one of our South Florida members who now works at Starbucks Workers United and an organizer from Buffalo. And then uh, something I wanted to share is that yesterday I spoke with two um, strikers from two immigration detention centers in California, mm. the Mesa Verde Detention Center and the Golden State Annex. And they were able to actually call in from the detention center and join our Zoom meeting. I feel like their, their strike that's been going on for a few months hasn't received as much media attention as I think it should. Um, Let me just add that last week, we, uh, I had a short news story interviews with uh, a worker who had just been laid off from our, uh, one of the Starbucks stores here. They closed the store. Um, this was oh. after the union election. Wow. Yeah, the union election is is still being decided by the NLRB because there's a bunch of uh, challenge ballots. But um, this is one of their main stores in like the Country Club Plaza, which is like fancy, fancy, and they closed it, mm. saying it was too dangerous. Well, when they when they say dangerous, what they mean is just too dangerous from, for for Starbucks corporate right. lives. It's just right. Right. All right. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Have a great Labor Day weekend, and we'll see you all next week.
Later, y'all. Thank you. Bye.